I want to invite everyone to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. It begins with Genesis and the story of God, the origins of uh, humanity and the world and God as creator. And then we move into Exodus, uh, the story of God's liberation and salvation of his people. And we're in chapter 17. We've been looking at God's work amongst his people in the wilderness. I'm going to read our passage, uh, Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, as I'm sure all of you are aware, this is Mother's Day. And Mother's Day is an opportunity to stop and be grateful for the mothers in our life. And I say mothers plural uh, for a reason. Both biological moms and spiritual mothers. Uh, women that God has placed in our life to lead and love and extend compassion. Uh, personally, I'm grateful that God has brought a number of women into my life, uh, including my mom, but others, uh, to provide compassion and model God's grace in unique ways. And I'm grateful for all the women here, whether you have children or not, for the ways in which you love and care and lead. You are a gift. And uh, in honor of Mother's Day, I thought it would be fitting uh, to read a few hilarious tweets that uh, uh, kind of reflect on what it means to be a mom, and um, maybe some of these can, you can relate with some of these. Uh, Ash, uh, she says this, didn't realize how much motherhood had changed me until I army crawled in and out of my sleeping baby's room to get a half cup of cold coffee. Uh, Jennifer said, I don't even know why my kids call me mom. Clear, clearly, when they look at me, they see a human napkin. Stains and dirt all over. Uh, Kim said, we plan to be kind. I, I, I like this. We plan to be kind, patient moms who accept our kids exactly as they are. Then we see them take 40 minutes to eat, and I'll translate it, gosh darn, bowl of lucky charms. <laughs> That is so true. So lucky charms. I mean, you can't, uh, yeah. 
Uh, one mom said, most of my time as a mother has been spent in a closet eating something I didn't want to share. <laughs> so uh, those of you, maybe you can re- relate with some of that. You know, being a mom is hard work. Uh, just this morning, I was meeting with uh, our, our boys, and we were talking about ways we can love mom on Mother's Day and some gifts for her, and we have a six-year-old and a, th- two, a three-year-old, and I said, what, what, what are some ways we can love mom today? And our three-year-old said, we can get mom a new bed. Uh, <laughs> yep. Um, they, both, they both said, uh, we can get mom flowers, and that's a great, that's a great one, so I, I did go to the store and, and get some flowers. And, uh, and then another thing we talked about was they can love mom by not whining. And so when we presented our cards to, to Megan this morning, they both committed to not whine uh, for the day. So you can ask Megan tomorrow how that goes. We'll, we'll see. But being a mom is hard work. And kids, they, they complain and they whine, and a lot of times that's like the most difficult part of parenting. You're doing so much, you're serving, you're loving, and it never seems to be enough. Constant complaining, constant whining, constant, constant grumbling. And uh, my inclination when our kids are whining is to whine back. Just grumble. When they're grumbling at me, I'll whine back and grumble, and so we have this cycle of consistent complaining in our home. But it's interesting how God deals with grumblers, how God deals with our propensity to whine and complain and focus on what's wrong and what is missing in our lives. We've been walking through this story in Exodus, God liberating his people from slavery, and we find them now in the story in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, God is so gracious. Last week, we looked at God providing food. We we looked at the purpose of pain and the provision that God brings in the midst of pain. And this morning, we look at how God deals with us and his people when we grumble, when we focus on the pain, when we whine about what is missing, we will see the gracious love of God, three ways God extends grace to grumblers. Uh, The first is this. When we grumble, a God patiently provides. We see God's patience on display. And verse 3 says, The people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? You might be thinking, wait, all right, we've been going through Exodus and a little bit of deja vu. Didn't, weren't they complaining earlier? Is, am, I, am I forgetting? Is this, are we back to where we were? This isn't deja vu. We, we've seen this over and over and over again. God's people grumble and complain. And so for the sake of effect, let's look at, at the passages. They're going to be on the screen. We'll look at all of them. Uh, in Exodus chapter 2, 23, And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Where is God? Where is he in the midst of slavery? In Exodus 5, verse 21, uh, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and and they ask for uh, him to let God's people go, and Pharaoh responds by adding harsher penalties on them, and and the people respond. They say, the Lord took on you, the Lord's look on you and judge, because you have made us stink 
in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. God, people, they say, where is God? The, they're making accusations to Moses and God that they're just wishing their harm. In Exodus 14, after deliverance, when they're at the sea and, Moses, and Pharaoh's army is coming down on them, God's people again, they say to Moses, it is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this that we said to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? I don't quite remember it that way, but that's their memory. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Exodus 15, 24. <laughs> in this passage, right after they sing a song of salvation, praising God, they, they move on. The people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? In Exodus 16, last week, we looked at their hung, they're hungry in the desert. In verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. And then again, our passage this morning, the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And it all comes down to this question in verse 7. This question right here, maybe you can relate. In the midst of pain, in the midst of the wilderness, in the desert, they ask, is the Lord among us or not? Where is God? Where is God's goodness? Now, we read this. We engage with this as a story in a book. From one chapter, we see God provide, and then uh, God's people grumble, and then God provides, and God's people grumble, and God provides, and God's people grumble. We read this, and we think, you ungrateful people. Where is God? He's been there the whole time. But part of the reason we can come to that conclusion is because we're reading this with a bird's eye view. We see the big picture. We're reading this as chapters in a story. But when you experience pain, when you're in the midst of hunger and thirst, it's so tempting and easy to forget the ways that God has provided in the past and look toward the ways that God will provide in the future on the ground level. It's easy to just focus and to see the pains and problems and disappointments in life. And we ask, where are you, God? It's easy to forget when we grumble. Now, I think there's a few observations about grumbling in the text. What grumbling does, it has a distorted picture. Again, because we're on the ground level, struggling to get the bird's eye view of how God has provided in the past and providing in the present. On the ground level, we miss that, and so we grumble. And grumble does a few things. Grumbling, it has a distorted perspective of the past. It has this distorted perspective of the past. We read in chapter 16 where God's people said, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into the wilderness to kill us. They look back on Egypt and slavery and say, oh man, the good old times. Oh, do you remember back when we were in Egypt? I mean, Pharaoh was a little overbearing, but was he that bad? They have this distorted 
view of the past. And we do the same thing. You know, when we read this, it's like you, you see these actions and it's tempting to think, what is their problem? And it's much like when you walk into a home and you think you see a portrait and you're like, oh, what is that portrait? And then you find out it's a mirror. <laughs> we grumble. And we look at our past and the same things we used to pray for deliverance from, we wish we could go back to. Uh, maybe you found yourself in a, uh, in a, wanting to get out of school. Last weekend was... Uh, was uh, graduation at Ohio State, and for those of you who graduated, congratulations. And there was probably a time when you were looking forward to it being done. You're like, I can't wait to be done with school. All life will be so much better. It'll be easier. It won't be as busy. Oh, man, I can't wait to be done with school. I'm so finished. And then you graduate, and I give you a few months, maybe years, and you're going to look back to the good old times of college. At one time, it was a prayer request. At one time, you were expecting life after college, and then life goes back on, and you look back at the good old times. Or maybe it was a job. You shared with friends this prayer request that God would give you a new job because your present one is you have a boss who's overbearing, and the hours are too much, and you, it's, it, it's stressful. And then God provides a new job, a new source of employment, and little time goes by, and you're sharing the same prayer request. And you're looking back, oh, the former boss was so good, and, and the hours were nice, and it wasn't as stressful. Or maybe it's living in a particular place. You're living somewhere, and you're thinking, man, I can't wait to get out of here. I grew up in Columbus, or grew up wherever you're from. You're like, man, this is boring, this is dull. Columbus, there's nothing to do, nothing for young people to do. People say that in every community. I can't wait to be somewhere fun. And then you move, and then you look back to the good old times, home, back when it was nice and you had friends. We have this propensity to look forward to something, and when we get it, to look back on the good old times. Grumbling has a distorted perspective of the past. Uh, grumbling also has a distorted perspective of others. God's people are thirsty, and they blame Moses. And that's what grumbling does. In fact, just the... Just the term grumbling, <laughs> it just sounds like it is, doesn't it? Grumbling, constantly criticizing, blaming, critiquing, blaming our parents, blaming politicians, blaming our boss, constantly looking at someone else as the source of the problems in our life, and we grumble. Also, grumbling, especially, it has a distorted perspective of God's provision. Uh, it, it fails to acknowledge the ways that God has provided. It focuses on where he is missing and the ways we want him to provide. In our heart, it has this bent. It's bent toward what's missing and what's wrong. I mean, think about it. When you're criticized, you know, one conversation of criticism, that sticks with you. And it could take a hundred compliments to offset that one critique. Our heart's bent. It remembers what's missing in problems or failure. You could be successful, do a hundred things right, but that one time, the one time you drop the ball, that sticks with you. Or broken relationship. 
You know, probably many of us, when we go to bed at night, we're not just dwelling on all the good friendships and relationships we have. We stay awake at night remembering that one relationship where there's pain. Our heart is bent toward problems and pain or unanswered prayer requests. We rarely sit back and consider and dwell on the numerous ways that God comes through, the numerous ways He's answered our prayer requests. We remember the one, those prayer requests we've brought to Him that we haven't seen answers toward. Our heart is bent toward what is missing. We struggle to remember God's provision. And this leads many of us to ask, is God good? And like they ask, where is He? Where is He? You know, it's common uh, to talk with people, people who are skeptics or, or even atheists who question, you know, people, many will say, when I look at the world and I see evil, I can't reconcile there being a good and loving God. But you almost want to flip the question to them. When you look at the world, do you see any goodness? And does that say anything about the presence of God? We struggle to consider and look at the provision, the ways God has graciously provided in our life. And that is in stark contrast because, you know, grumbling is impatient. It wants answers now. And here we see God's just gracious patience through it all. The bird's eye view of the, of the situation is God is patiently present through all the pain, through all the problems. God is there. And so in our lives, what does it look like for you to take a bird's eye view, to survey, to see, to be honest, to honestly reflect on the ways God has graciously provided in your life? What are some of those ways? The fact that you have life, the fact that you can breathe, the fact that you have abilities, those are gifts from God. How is God graciously working and providing in your life? We see God's gracious provision. Grumbling focuses on what's wrong. We need to take a bird's eye view to see the perspective of the way God provides. Also, we see God's grace and that God stands on the rock of judgment to cover ungrateful grumblers. In our text, commentators will note that what we have here Though it's not readily apparent, uh, what we have here is a trial. We have a trial in the desert. And verse 2 says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Do you test the Lord? The Hebrew term for quarreling here has the idea of putting someone on the stand. They're wanting to put Moses and, and God on the stand. This is a legal objection. They are wanting to blame Moses for their death. That's why they're saying, you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. The people unite. They say, listen, we're going to die. And Moses is guilty. We need to put him on the stand. We need justice. They have a legal objection to what Moses is doing. And that's why Moses... That's why he responds to God. He says, they are about to stone me because the penalty is death. Moses isn't exaggerating. He sees the situation. God's people, they've gathered. They're putting him on the stand and they want to find him guilty and they want to stone him. Moses pleads to God. 
He says, what do, you, do something. You know, Moses has been charged, but you know who they're really after is God. And in the pains and problems and evil of life, many of us, we want to put God on the stand. C.S. Lewis talks about this as putting God on the dock. And he observed that rather than God being judge and people being on the stand, we reverse it. That we place ourselves as judge and we put God on the stand. We want to blame him for the problems, blame him for the suffering. We look at the evil in the world, we're like, where is God? Put him on the stand. Let's find him guilty. That's what God's people are doing. They're wanting to put God on the stand. And how does God respond? This is shocking. This is shocking. Uh, we see it in verses 5 and following. One, first, we see in God's response. He's, God says to Moses, God says, Take the staff in your hand with which you struck the Nile. And this is very significant. The staff, or how it's translated in other Bibles, the rod represents judicial authority. In ancient cultures, they looked at the rod or a staff as a symbol of judicial authority. In, uh, in the Roman Empire, Roman officials carried with them what's called the fasces, a bundle of rods tied with a red band and an axe sticking out of it. And when someone was uh, brought before a Roman official uh, for committing an act of injustice, they would take one of the rods. If they were found guilty, they would take one of the rods and strike them with it. Because this was a symbol of justice. A rod would bring justice on injustice. This was the same rod that Moses used to bring justice on the Egyptians. God says, take the staff. We're going to have a trial. The instrument of God's justice. But also, second, see this. Uh, God says, take with you some of the elders of Israel. And the elders here aren't just the elderly among God's people. The elders were witnesses that were called before a trial. And so here we have the situation. God's people are asking for a trial. They're asking for justice. And God shows up and he says, you want a trial? We'll have a trial. Now imagine in this moment, God's people, they see Moses and the elders come out before them. I can't help but think there's probably a lot of anxiety right here. It's, I can relate, I kind of like being a kid, those times where I would whine and press on my parents, and, and I was a little mouthy as a kid, and I would be saying things, and my parents would be a little patient, but maybe I pushed it a little too far, and my dad would get the belt, and it's like, okay, quiet. <laughs> Here Moses comes out with the staff, and they know what this staff can do. They've seen what it's done. They've seen the justice, the power that it brings. And God's people are now quiet, and they're wondering what is going to happen. Out comes Moses. But notice what happens. Moses comes out for the people, but God instructs him, pass on by the people. They know there's a trial, but they're not on the stand. The question then is Moses on the stand. Moses isn't because he's the judge. He has judicial authority. He has the staff in his hand. Who is on trial? And then we see. In the text it says, God says, Behold, I will stand before you. 
Behold, I will stand before you. In ancient cultures, to stand before someone was for an inferior to stand before a superior. You would stand before a king, acknowledging that he is the one in authority. And here we see God place himself as the inferior in the situation. God is on the stand. God is the prisoner led to the gallows. The trial puts God as the prisoner. And then look at what happens. God says, I will stand before you on the rock, and you shall strike the rock. Again, the staff representing judicial authority. And what we have here is judicial authority, justice coming down on God. God says, bring justice on me. Now, when we look at the situation, we know, we know who deserves to be on the stand. But God goes on the stand in his people's place. We see God's response toward grumbling people. He takes the penalty they deserve so that they could be pardoned. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, looking back on this situation, he says, the rock is Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus cries out. He cries out, I thirst. Jesus experiences existential thirst so that we could drink from the water of living life. God puts his son on the rock to receive the justice that we deserve so that we could be pardoned. We have here substitutionary atonement. God stands in our place so that we could be free. You know, it's tempting. We look at the situation, and again, we want to blame everyone else for the problems of the world, and we want to blame God. But if we're honest, when we look at the evil and suffering at the world, it is at the hands of people. Violence, war, abuse, people hurting people. And God enters the trial and stands in the place of sinful humanity. When we place our faith in him, we find pardon. When we place our faith in him, we find forgiveness. One pastor Edmund Clowney puts it this way, speaking of, of Exodus 17 and Jesus Christ. He said, God, who is the shepherd of his people, not only leads them through the wilderness, he stands in their place that justice might be done. The penalty is discharged. Moses strikes the rock. The Lord redeems by bearing the judgment. From the smitten rock there flows the water of life into the deadly wilderness, when Paul says the rock was Christ, he perceived this, perceives the symbolism of the passage. Christ is present both in person and in symbol. In that instance, incident, Christ the Lord stands on the rock as the theophonic angel, but the symbol of the rock is needed to provide the symbol of that human nature he must assume to receive the atoning blow of judgment. In Jesus Christ, we find pardon and forgiveness. Now, what does this look like practically? 
You know, we have here in the text a courtroom in the desert, but many of us experience courtrooms in the day-to-day realities of life. We go and we are in the courtroom of people's approval. Probably this afternoon, you might experience some of that if you go out to lunch. Uh, You can enter into the courtroom in a restaurant. Uh, Maybe you're going with young kids, and you're a mother, and you have your young kids in a restaurant, and kids in restaurants, they just seem to not sit there and behave. And maybe your kids will be screaming and hollering and crying, and they might even yell back at you, and you see and you feel the stares coming down, and you want to hide because you know in those moments there's a judgment on you, a verdict on you, failure, failure as a parent. Or maybe your lunch, maybe you'll be eating with uh, family, and maybe you're a single and eating with family is a hard time because mom is going to ask if you're dating anyone. And if you're not, they want to set you up with the nice boy down the street. And like, thanks, mom. Or they want to set you up with their friend's daughter. Thanks, you know, mom. And in those comments, though they might be well-meaning, you feel judgment, failure. Or maybe Mother's Day is hard because you're unable to have children. You've been trying and praying and... On a day like today, you just hear the internal voice. As other moms are celebrated, you hear the internal voice, failure. We live in the courtroom of life, the courtroom of others and our own voices. The one to say, you don't measure up. You aren't good enough. You fail. One of the biggest courtrooms can be a church. Maybe you feel that this morning right here. Right now, the stares from other people, hearing the pastor up here talking about God, the feeling of failure, and what this means is that Jesus satisfies the verdict in full. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, there is full pardon in spite of what everyone says. In spite of what you say to yourself, in Jesus Christ, the verdict is in. God looks at you and he sees his beloved child, forgiven, pardoned, set free. There is nothing, nothing, nothing you can do to earn God's love. It is paid in full on the cross. That is why Jesus at the end says, it is finished. Nothing more can be done. The verdict is in. The gavel has come down. You are forgiven. You are loved. We see God's grace on grumblers. He covers our sin. God is gracious. He is patient. He covers. And lastly, God offers living water to satisfy our ultimate thirst for satisfaction. You know, grumbling can lead us to question God, but another thing that grumbling can do, it can lead us to question, what are we really after? What does grumbling say about our desires? 
that we are never satisfied, that we always thirst again. You know, one of the things we see here is that God, he, they strike the rock and water comes out, sustaining life. Uh, years after, not long after this event, God instituted a major annual festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was to be a week-long festival, much like a week-long Thanksgiving, to celebrate God's provision, particularly uh, God's provision uh, in the Exodus story. And, and unfortunately, God's people forgot about this festival, but eventually, years later, they began to practice it. And what they did, every day for six days, the people would gather in the temple precinct. And the priest would pour water into a bowl on the altar to commemorate God's provision of water here in the desert. And while the priest poured out the water, the people anticipated the coming of the Messiah by reciting these words from Isaiah. Listen to what they would say. Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then on the last day of the feast, no water was poured out. And instead the people would stand in silence, contemplating the living water that the Messiah would one day bring. In a desert in Samaria, Jesus would meet a woman at a well. A Samaritan woman there to draw water because she was thirsty. And Jesus at this well, meeting this woman, was thirsty himself. And he asked her to give him water. And they have this conversation. And Jesus basically offers her living water. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman, she hears this. She says to him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have, come, have to come here to draw water. What we see here, Jesus is saying that he is the Messiah. He is the one who has come to satisfy the thirst of every human being. Now it's startling. In the passage, the woman, she responds, she says, she says, give me this water. This is great. Yes, I don't want to come to the well. I don't want to come here again. This is, yes, a, a water that will leave me never, never thirsty again, give it to me. And Jesus has this startling response. He seems so insensitive. Look at what he says. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. <laughs> what, what are you doing, Jesus? What, what is this? You offer her living water, and she asks for it, and you say, you, you basically point out her sin? Jesus, you're insensitive. What does her transgressions have to do with her search for living water? And the answer is everything. You see, Jesus knows that she's been thirsting for something deeper than water all her life. There's been a spiritual thirst, and she's sought satisfaction in relationships with men. Satisfaction that will never ultimately satisfy. 
You see, Jesus understands that what he's saying to the woman at the well, what God is saying to his people in the desert, and what he's saying to us today, anytime we put the bucket of our heart under the well of anything other than God, we will never, never find satisfaction. Think of what you're grumbling about in life. What we long for. What does that say about our true spiritual thirst? When we hear criticism, uh, when we feel relational abandonment, what does it say about what we ultimately need? Look to the gospel. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to the one who died on the cross so that you could be brought in. Put the bucket of your heart in that well. What well are you drawing from today? Let's draw from the water of living life. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your patience. We struggle to be grateful. It's so easy to find what is missing and what is wrong. Thank you in the midst of our grumbling that you still continue to patiently provide. And Lord, we're mindful of the provision of your son on the cross. It's tempting, it's tempting to look at your people grumbling and think, just let them thirst. Let them go thirsty. But you don't. Your son experienced ultimate thirst so that we could drink from the well of life. Lord, nourish us, sustain us. May we look to the gospel as the source of our identity and where life is ultimately found. We pray this in the name of your son, the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.